0: I talk with a lot of entrepreneurs about selling their businesses. It just comes up a lot when people are burnt out or when they are in a place of transition and sort of seeking a direction, trying to decide, do I want to double down on this business for the long haul? Do I want to do something else? Am I bored? Do I need to hire a CEO? Or do I pursue a sale, a big exit that might allow me to do different things? And it is a big decision in the life of a founder, and it's often a decision that gets made out of a certain amount of angst or fear or uncertainty about the future. It's a hard one. And I've watched from a distance as Chris Savage from Wistia has talked about how he and his co-founder, Brendan, decided not to sell but to really double down on retaining control and creative freedom within their company. So they got this great lucrative offer and it really set them to thinking. And ultimately they decided that they really wanted to run the business, that they loved doing it, but they wanted to run it in their way. So they took on $17 million of debt to buy out all of their investors and retain full financial, creative, directional control of Wistia. And many of us know Wistia, it's a phenomenally successful video software uh, that many, many of us use. So Chris was at MicroConf this year and was talking through this decision. And I was so struck by some of the emotional and thought process aspects of this decision and how his business has really changed and kind of been re-energized now that he and his team have decided that they want to be in it for the long haul. So I'm super excited to share this interview with you. I hope you enjoy it. And hey, if you do enjoy it, it never hurts to tell someone about it or leave us a review on iTunes because, you know, sharing is caring. Welcome to the Zen Founder Podcast. This is a place where we have conversations about mental health and entrepreneurship. We have a pretty broad conceptualization of what mental health means. Sometimes depression, anxiety, sometimes relationships or physical health. The goal here is to bring some calm into the crazy roller coaster of ups and downs that is life for many entrepreneurs. I'm your host, I'm Dr. Sherry Walling. I'm a clinical psychologist and an entrepreneur, married to an entrepreneur, live in the world of entrepreneurs, and I'm so pleased that you have joined us for this conversation. Chris it is so I'm I'm just delighted to talk with you about Wistia and your growth as a CEO and the growth of your company. You've definitely I think captured the imagination of a number of founders that I've talked with in the last couple of months and years being a model of a company that's really sort of doing their own thing in a pretty unique way. So thanks for talking with me.
1: Thanks for having me. Excited to be here.
0: Yeah. One of the articles that I think has been pretty widely circulated among the founder space in the last couple of years is your article that you wrote, I guess last summer, Yep. about um, you had this offer to sell your company for a life-changing amount of money and instead <laughs> you took on $17 million of debt. <laughs> so that's a pretty good a pretty good lead. <laughs> <laughs> I know that's a long and involved story, but just, just like the highlights for this conversation.
1: Yeah, the, the highlights are in mid-2017, almost two years ago exactly, we actually had three different companies pursuing Wistia trying to buy the company. And we talked to those companies because we're not having the greatest time. And we didn't really admit that. My co-founder and I had not said to each other, like, hey, we're not having fun anymore. But I think we're both afraid if we admitted that, that that would cause other problems. (laughs) But these offers came and we looked at them. And what it came down to was they're all companies we respected people we respected, life-changing amount of money. And we realized that... (laughs) That's usually why you able to do a startup is to sell. <laughs> but yeah. we were sitting there feeling really bad, you know, and, and feeling like we had failed, even though we were facing down the opportunity to sell the business. And so we kept talking like, well, if we sell, what will we do after? It's about we'll do our time at the company, but then we'll leave and then we'll start something else. And we knew that we wanted to build a company with a strong brand. We felt like there's a lot of stuff in the video space that we had not done yet. We knew the types of people we'd want to hire. We knew the type of office we (laughs) wanted. We're
0: going to build our same company all over again.
1: Yeah, we're going to try to build our company again. And we're going to try to build it again. And why wouldn't we just keep going? Well, there was problems. And we felt like we could not deal with the problems if we sold. That's what we thought at first. And the more deeply we thought about it, we realized, actually, we saw we're still going to have to deal with the problems because we're still going to have to go fix this stuff. We're just going to be fixing it for somebody else. And... What if we just take a bet on ourselves? What if we actually don't sell and we say, let's try to fix all this stuff. Let's try to build the company we want. Let's make Wistia be the company we want it to be. And that means not selling. And then by not selling, so we've made that decision. Mm-hmm. And the second we made the decision we felt super good. You know, I had been probably a couple of years of a lot of stress, not having good work-life balance, not sleeping well enough at night, all those things. To instantly being like, even though at that exact moment we were losing hundreds of thousands of dollars a month because we were trying to put everything back into growth. We had all these problems. I suddenly started sleeping great because I knew what I had to do and what we wanted to do. And then we had to, we were misaligned with our investors and our employees. And so debt was a way, raising debt was a way to facilitate a buyback. So we were able to offer to all our angel investors a return. And we we're also able to offer a return to our employees who we'd given a lot of options too, of course, because they came early days. And then reset and refocus the business on being lasting and on being profitable.
0: So you essentially rebuilt the company, but it sounds like you were realigning to some of the earlier values that you had when you started. And yes, you started at 23, a, right? You were just kind of yeah, starting yeah. as a kid, really. Yes, yeah. But when yeah, you needed to fix it, you sort of went back to those early days.
1: Yeah, it was funny. We didn't realize at... That we had found something really magical and how unique that, that magical thing was. And, you know, we were like five years into building the company, I'm 28, we were really profitable. And we started to do all these really creative things because we were profitable. And, you know, we started to do tons of content marketing with videos, we started investing on in brand, we started taking the company on retreats. We started doing all these things that don't make sense when you're not profitable. That when you're profitable, like, yeah, well, of course we should do that. Yeah. And we built up this thing that I call profitable confidence that, like, well, we were profitable, so we were confident we could take these risks. And most of those risks were long term risks, so they're creative risks. And then we got this advice, like, oh, if you're profitable and you're growing revenue quickly, which we were, if you weren't profitable, you could probably grow growing faster. And that's how valuations are determined, is how fast the revenue growth is. And so we eventually heard that so much as so much of the common narrative that we operated the company for three years, like we raised a venture growth round, Like we yeah. took the money we'd saved up and we started running negative and we lost that profitable confidence. And so it took losing it almost to realize, wait a second, when we are losing money and taking more financial risk, we're actually taking less long-term risk. We're taking less creative risk. And in this bizarre way, it made everything like really short-term focused. Mm-hmm. Which is what it felt like before we were profitable in the early days. Until so this thing clicked for us. So it was like, you know, if we could get back to being profitable, we could force ourselves to be profitable again. We could probably do better work, actually.
0: You can have parades work. and do the things that yes. are like sort of crazy and creative, but that make you you. As a exactly.
1: Company. And those are the things that had actually driven our growth. Yeah. So that was if we could go back to being profitable, we could find that headspace we were in before. And it is funny because it is about headspace. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like I've had conversations with entrepreneurs who have said, you could have just ignored your investors and they want a return. You don't have to give them a return. And you could have just done this stuff. And yes, that is true, kind of. But like, it's also not because when you're constantly getting pressure and you're misaligned with people and you have smart people who, you know, they invest in, when you do angel investing, you want a return. <laughs> That's right. Sure. The psychology of what it's like to operate in that is very, very different than when you said, actually, I have gotten your return. We are, you know, raising debt forced us to be profitable because we had to be profitable service the debt. So it also changed, it changed everything about our psychology and the psychology of the team. Like there's a team that wants to be here for this. They want to be at a company that is profitable and growing and trying to do a lot with a little, and they, they like those constraints. And there are people who are here who left when we made this change because they wanted growth, like revenue growth at all costs. That's what they like. That's how they saw opportunity. So yeah, it, a lot of it has been about like reframing reframing the psychology of how you work.
0: Yeah. Which is not easy to do when everything in the ethos around you is suggesting growth, growth at all costs. Not to mention the people that you have these arrangements with your investors, people who are part of your company that also have that value and how tricky for you to push back against that?
1: It is weird because our the startup system celebrates things that are like data that's public. Mm-hmm. And so the press, blog posts, like people like to talk about how much money they've raised as if it's because it's a signal. Sure. It's a number money. that
0: people can use to say this is bigger than that.
1: Yeah, exactly. And you also assume that if you get money from good you know, smart venture capitalists that people know, you're probably on to something. That's what everybody assumes. And so it's this self-reinforcing thing where, oh, the other piece of it is if you get fundraising, you have to disclose it publicly with the mm-hmm. SEC. So it's the one number that must be disclosed that people use as a signal of success. And it creates this warped environment where, yeah, it is hard because you look around, there's companies who've raised 50 million bucks who are almost no revenue or zero revenue. And here we are growing profit, a lot of revenue and we get way less press than that. So it's a weird, it's a weird thing. And it's also to be comfortable with it. I think you have to be comfortable with who you are, right? Yeah. Like that's actually what it is. It's like, this is who we are. This is how we're playing the game. And yeah, it's different. And we have to use that to our advantage.
0: Do you feel better able to do that now than when you were 23, 24, 25?
1: Yeah, I definitely, I mean, I didn't understand these dynamics then. Mm-hmm. you know, I spent a long time educating myself on the fundraising market. Cause I thought we would raise money. Yeah. And so I, not only did I look in the, who are the good VCs, but like the economics of it and the carry and how that works and the management fees and who the LPs are, the limited partners. And, you, and when you dig in really deep, you start to realize that your capitalists are working for limited partners. And who those limited partners are and what their returns are, are going to determine if they evaluate that the venture capital fund is returning well. And you look at the math there and you realize, yeah, if you're a venture capitalist and you're not the best, the best, what you want to do is raise the biggest fund you can. Mm-hmm. It's a 10 year time horizon and you get a cup, you know, you two companies in it that are doing okay. And you point to them, you raise another fund and you can make enough money off the management fees that you don't even need returns. And it's like such a long-term game. And when you realize that, it's just very, very different than what the incentives are for an entrepreneur.
0: Yeah. And
1: yeah, it just, it's, I thought we'd go down that route, but it turned out to be more complicated. There's just more dynamics at play. And for us, it's like, well, we're in control of our destiny now. Yeah. And that's that's what we set ourselves up for.
0: And how are you assessing Wistia's success now?
1: Joy. (laughs)
0: <laughs> no not, not, uh, yes I love that it's yeah. <laughs> one of my favorite words <laughs> yeah
1: yeah if it's not fun for us and it's not it's not it's not fun for the people here then we're not and and by joy I, I mean I join the work like that the challenges of the are fun and I think like we look at success as can we help our customers enough mm-hmm. like are they telling us that we're helping them are we actually having an impact in their day Same thing for the team. That's the joy piece. I think for our community, like we're trying to be a lasting company. And that means that, you know, if we keep growing, we're going to be, hopefully, you know, a pretty big company. There's going to be a lot of people who work at Wistia who are in our community. Uh And we're going to have an impact on the community. And we should have a positive impact on the community. And so I try to look at all those vectors, like customer experience, employee experience, impact in the community, and if those things feel like we're, we're, we're making progress and people love what they're doing and we're doing good creative work, then yeah, we're probably doing great.
0: Are there safeguards that you've put in place for yourself or for you and your co-founder to help avoid the draw into a different set of values? Like, it feels like that there's always things that are going to pull at us to sort of say, this is actually success and this is how you should define it. And it's on us to really like buffer ourselves against that, I guess.
1: Yeah, I mean, the way I look at values is I think there's values are and culture are how you enact strategy. And so for us, we have been really clear about what our strategy is and what we're trying to do in the market. And that like we're trying to build a lasting company that we're trying to win through product leadership. So we're trying to build a better product for our customers and the other options that are out there. There's going to be a cheaper version and there's going to be a more enterprisey version. But we're trying to focus on the building the best and to do that, we have values that hopefully if you use all four of them. And our values are creativity, simplicity, presentation, and long-term company thinking. If you use those values when you're making a decision, then you're making a decision in a wistier way. And it's this idea that like your values and your culture should be different in different strategic contexts. And so by aligning our, value, our strategy really clearly and having our values aligned, that people can make good decisions. And then there's the values that we expect when we're hiring, like the values that we expect people to have, you know, integrity, curiosity, honesty, like a bunch of different things that we look for that are, they need to be innate in who you are as like a human being. And so if we can get those, if we can get the right people here and we get them making the decisions in the right way, it actually shouldn't be that hard to um, maintain our values.
0: I agree, except functionally, it does seem to be. Not not specifically for Wistia, but I think so many businesses face that sort of cycle that you've experienced before, where you you get distance from yourself for whatever reason. Someone's giving you bad advice, the market's changing in a weird way, some other competitor comes up and makes it feel like there's a scarcity mentality. I mean, there's all these things that threaten that. So in your conversations, is the strategy to keep keep those values at the forefront of every conversation, every decision that you're making about implementing strategy or? Yeah.
1: I mean, the, the, the values are baked into how we do performance reviews. They're yeah. baked into how we do our hiring. I mean, we've tried to have our values be baked into the most fundamental elements of success or failure at Wistia, right? And the worst thing is to have somebody who is like, a high level performer who doesn't align with the values mm-hmm. and to allow that to occur. I mean, I, it's one of those things you can say this stuff over and over, but if your actions don't actually meet up, people will, people will do things based on your actions not on what you say. And they'll believe things based on your actions and not on what you say. And so, yeah, I mean, it, 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 a lot of that also comes down to I think continuing to model the values that you expect because as the organization grows, there's always more uncertainty in like little ways and people look to their leaders to figure out what is good and what is bad. And yeah, that has been one of the interesting like leadership lessons that I've had in the last like four or five years is that we're, we kept trying to make process to fix things. And then sometimes you just do it as a leader and it just, it gets implemented, you know, mm-hmm. with no process.
0: It comes uh, from within you.
1: Well, like an example of this is we do quarterly employee engagement service and they're all anonymous. And super helpful to do because you can figure out by department, like, what are the issues and what's going on? And there was maybe like a year and a half ago, we had a challenge with recognition. And so their numbers were pretty low that people felt like they were properly recognized. And it was interesting because we were using things like 15.5 to do recognition. We were talking about people at company meetings and things that they were doing. But people felt like it was the same people getting talked about at company meetings. And the 15-5 usage was inconsistent. We mm-hmm. thought, how can we make this better? What can we do? And so we decided, you know, we need to model the behavior we want from everybody. And uh, even though, like, I have, to, I have to provide recognition to the senior team properly. And if I do that, they're going to provide recognition to other people properly. And it's, gonna, it's just going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. We got really good advice from someone at Mailchimp about this actually, who had told us like, I was talking to Farah, who's Farah Kennedy, who's their COO. And she was like, yeah, you just, you have to do it and figure out your way of doing it. And everyone else will copy it and you don't need some crazy process. Mm -hmm. And so we started just using 15.5 as a senior management team and making sure everyone was doing high fives in it. And we also started like emailing, like if you see, if I hear about somebody who did something awesome, I'll email that person directly and CC their manager And guess what? Everyone just started doing that.
0: That just happened, huh?
1: Lit up and within the course of like two months, the recognition problem went away entirely. And it was, it actually came back to just leading by example. And if we think it's important for us to spend our time on that, then other people realize it is important.
0: Yeah. Hey, how do you keep creativity as such a central part of your business?
1: I think for us, it's about being comfortable with risk-taking mm-hmm. and encouraging risk-taking and encouraging the sharing of learning. And then it's only a failure if we, if something's only a failure, if we didn't learn, and then you hire people who are really creative. And so we've hired a lot of people who are not been in tech before. We've hired a lot of artists, musicians. We've hired people who have not been in tech and thrown them in this world and said, figure it out. <laughs> <And> uh-huh. <laughs> having a diversity of people in the room is going to make you more creative and so we just try to we try to get the right ingredients, and then set people free to take risks.
0: And what kinds of things have totally flopped?
1: Oh, we've had many things flop. Usually, the nice thing about a flop is that most people don't see it,
0: so, <laughs> so it's um, hidden away somewhere. I mean, you can go find the blog posts; <laughs> you can see
1: if they're out there. But most people <laughs> didn't see them, and that's why they flopped. I mean, um, yeah. I mean, we built tons of features that didn't resonate the way that we expected things where we didn't do enough research and we were really excited about something and we did it. We are like years too early on it. We had a huge investment in 360 video and VR and we made like 360 heat maps and all this stuff. Yeah. And we like got the headsets and got everyone using them and realized there are really cool ways to do that. And there's our customers who still use us for that today, but it's still a tiny, 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 tiny fraction and that's gonna be, I still think that's gonna happen. I think it's just gonna take it's gonna continue to
0: take. it's just not yet. Not yeah, yet for the, the, the main. The, yeah, a lot of stuff I feel like
1: you're it's I've learned this lesson over and over. You can be totally right about what's gonna happen. Having a conversation with a friend, hey, I think like cars are gonna drive themselves someday. Okay, great. Now try to figure out when. Mm-hmm. The when is the hard part. The when is always, always, always the hard part. And it's like, if you get that timing right, yeah, you can have a huge success. But if you're too early or too late, like, it's it's hard.
0: You founded the company with, is it Brendan? Yep. And you managed to navigate sort of all of these highs and lows together throughout the past couple of years. What's what's your strategy for keeping a healthy relationship with him?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So we were good friends before we started the company. We'd known each other for about five years. Mm -hmm. Uh, Went to college together lived in the same freshman hall. And we were good friends. And we went into it saying, we're going to put our friendship first, like in front of the business. Mm -hmm. This isn't just about getting rich. Like this is about going into these challenges together. And we also lived together for the first four years of starting a company. Oh, wow. Yeah. And we worked out of that house. So
0: you know each other pretty well, huh? Extremely (laughs) well. Like maybe more than you
1: wish. (laughs) Uh, We know each other incredibly well. And it was interesting. I mean, I think in the early days, it took us about a year to realize we really had to divide up our ownership really clearly. And we were going to do different stuff and we have different strengths. Mm -hmm. And it was important to do that so we could have a balanced business. And we just learned like when you have problems, you have to actually talk about them. It's kind of a simple, it's like a marriage. Like you want to have a great marriage? Just talk about your problems.
0: Got to say it out loud.
1: That's what it is, and so we are pretty good about if there's an issue that comes up, we call each other on our sh-. We talk about our issues if we're disagreeing. It's pretty obvious if we're disagreeing about something. Everyone can tell. I think both of us, just by as who we are, wear our emotions on our sleeve. I do to a ridiculous degree. So I'll walk into the office and someone I don't work with very closely I'll be like, "Hey, Chris, are you okay?" I won't even upset at work. Yeah. And I'll be like, uh, yeah, and of course I'm not. They just can read my, f- so I'm. I feel like I'm an open book, and he is, he is too. And so for that reason, it's pretty easy to tell if we're not in sync, and you just have to address it. We've also set the company up to be completely equal, so we have equal ownership. We pair ourselves the same amount, and we realized that we both have two jobs, which is like to do our day to day operational jobs and also to be on the board. And so on the board, like. He and I are both assessing the company at large, and yeah. he has a role in assessing me, and I have a role in assessing him, and that's just how it is. And I think because of that, we've we've really, yeah, it's been it's been fantastic. I mean, we work really well together.
0: How are you sleeping these days?
1: Sleeping great. <laughs> I mean, I have two young children, so Yeah, so best uh, as
0: can be expected.
1: <laughs> yeah, best as can be expected last night was a good night. Uh, so it's um but yeah, I'm not stressed about the, about yet.
0: As you mentioned, you had that like couple year period where you were pretty stressed and you weren't sleeping well. Was oh, yeah. that sort of a, a signal to you? Like, huh, maybe maybe I'm not okay. Or maybe this isn't okay.
1: That's eventually what I realized is like, I was not sleeping well enough and I was trying a lot of stuff to keep my mental health in check. So I was like, I, I figured out during that period that exercising and meditating every day was having a very positive impact on me.
0: Mm-hmm. So
1: I would get up super early, like a crazy person and pre kids and meditate first thing. And then, you know, go for a run and then come back and then do email from like 7am. And I had this very prescriptive way of trying to manage the stress and I was working constantly and I felt like I loved the work. So I didn't really understand what was happening. Uh-huh. Um, and then the funny thing, of course, is where we are now, I realized, oh, we were unclear about where we were going, which is creating stress. We also did not have our senior management team set up properly. And so we were too in the weeds as well. Mm-hmm. And so like now I have an incredible team. And so many of these people were here before, but I hadn't like delegated properly. I hadn't asked them to step up properly. And so one of the other things that's hugely different is not only am I sleeping well and I'm continuing to work out and meditate, but I have a ton of free time. Yeah. And I realized that a big part of my job is actually just thinking about the future and yeah. talking to customers or talking to partners and like allowing my mind to go really, really far in the future. And that should make it easier to make decisions that are long-term focused. And that's what my job is. But I could wasn't even close to doing that before because everything was so hyper-focused on the short term and there were fires that return, and there was like, the company was not operating with one system, so there's a lot of confusion across departments. Yeah, so it's like night and day from from where we were. But I I, I didn't really. It's like a that thing about the frog in the water boiling.
0: Yep, absolutely. Like, like
1: you just starts happening, and you actually see it as a, a busyness feels like a sign of success.
0: Absolutely, that feels
1: like a sign of success. Like that's what I imagined running a company
0: to be. Right, I'm very important. I have very important things to do. That's why I have to work a lot, and I. And working really hard
1: yeah and it's like the hustle form right like yeah i'd hang out with people and go to some go to dinner and drinks with a bunch of entrepreneurs and then some of them would pull out their laptops and start working at like 11 p.m on a retreat and i'm like what are you doing like well, i gotta get this done yeah. like, what is going on here yeah it's just this warped sense of like what you think success looks like and it's very weird and backwards to think like actually i need more time now It's my responsibility to make those bigger decisions, hopefully make them quickly, make them thoughtfully. And if I don't have the time to do that and I don't have the mental health to do that, then that's not – we're not going to be in good shape.
0: Was it hard for you to let go of some of the control of the day-to-day, to to Um, step out of the weeds, so to speak?
1: It was hard because people did things better than me. (laughs) Uh you know so you give up you give it up and you're like whoa that's working really well was I doing a horrible job at it before and then you give up another thing and it's this again same thing of realizing your job has to be constantly shifting as a company is growing and you have to constantly have to be delegating different things and there's new sets of problems and new sets of challenges in front of you and then you have to look at them and realize yeah there's this new thing it would be fun to figure that out I think I could do that really well but actually I shouldn't do that even though today I have time, someone else should do it. It's gonna do a better job. It's gonna be more thoughtful. It's gonna give me the space to work on the next problem.
0: Yeah, talking with so many founder CEOs who are in this process of moving away from the day-to-day management of the business and moving into the, the sort of thought work that requires space and time, I find that that's such a difficult transition for them because they're so used to having, sort of assessing this, the quality of a day or the success of a day by how many things got ticked off the to-do list. Oh, yeah. But that's not your job anymore at all. Yeah.
1: And it's very delicate. Uh, I mean, there was a moment when I had meetings all day, every day, and I would come home And my wife would be like, how was work? Like, amazing. I just Mm -hmm. solved problems all day. It felt so good. Mm -hmm. And then it switched the mode of like, oh, I have like two meetings today. I have five hours of free time. Yeah. And how was work? I don't know. Like, I don't know how it was. Like, you know. I'll tell
0: you in three years. Yeah. And it's like
1: going from working in the company to working on the company. And if you do it too early, you're screwed. Uh Uh-huh. Switch too early because you have to be close to the right types of problems at the right time. And if you're too too late, then you're underwater and everything's broken. So it is this delicate – it's a skill of realizing, I think, like, oh, there are big problems that are in front of us. I should be thinking about them. I should be talking to other people. I should be reading books. I should be whatever, working on myself to hopefully help us tackle these issues. Or I should just be tackling other issues that are in front of us today. And it's it's almost like thinking about that balance, I think, is just really important and building up the skill to know when you should do that.
0: Yeah, how have you gone about cultivating mentors and advisors?
1: So it's been pretty organic, and I was fortunate in the early days. We found one person who was an early angel investor and was excited about working with Brennan and I. and And his name is Ashton Peary, and he joined our board and was just like a like a general startup management advisor type person. So he would always help with like people stuff, which for a long time was one of the big challenges we had. It was like, is this the right person? Is this not the right person? Should we hire for a new role? Should we like constantly back and forth like that? And then as we started to get traction, I found that the best advice I got was from other entrepreneurs who were just in front or just behind us
0: mm-hmm. in
1: terms of stage of the business.
0: What was the and- value of people just behind you?
1: when you're growing you have your own set of limitations and opportunities in your market and like you don't know what are the it's very hard to know what it's like inside someone awesome else's business
0: mm-hmm. and so
1: sometimes you talk to people who are behind us and they're like they skipped an entire thing that we did and it didn't matter that they skipped it or they hired a role earlier or something
0: yeah. and you're like wait a second
1: what if we did that now like we've been dealing, like a good example i think we hired our first people ops person when we were like 25 people and I remember talking to a bunch of entrepreneurs who were like that's crazy that you need HR now I was like oh I think it would be really helpful because help with recruiting and then I talked to some companies that hired someone and they're like seven people and like why would you do that I was like well we didn't want to have like any organizational people issues as so we're scaling was like, crap probably should have been. like that's what I would do next time you know mm-hmm. and uh, it's just it's you can learn a lot from people who are going through similar challenges to you mm-hmm. or about to go through them
0: Okay. It sounds like you also have a couple of people who are far ahead of you.
1: Yes. And then over the years, I've built up relationships with people who are very far ahead of us mm-hmm. and people whose like, I can go to for more values, operational stuff, scaling stuff, Like almost like, you know, there are certain things you have to trust your instincts on as a company gets bigger. And so I think you have to find the people whose values you really aligned with and if you're looking to get advice and cultivate like actual real relationships. And so like, there's people who I, I've been getting to know for the last like eight years yeah. who will, will give us advice on stuff. And that we might only talk like three times a year, but we'll go with like a huge issue and they'll be like, yep, dealt with that once. This is what happened. And I'm like, wow. Okay. And even just the way they talk about it, you're like, maybe this isn't as big of a dish, is, is an issue as I thought it was.
0: Right. But when you talk with people who are on the other side of it, you know, yeah. you sort of get this sense of like, oh, this is survivable. This is solvable. Yeah. And here's what it looks like.
1: Yeah. it's so a lot of it is like building up resilience, I think. Yeah. And there have been many insane things that have happened since we started this company. And it turns out in any large organization, insane things happen. Things that are like, I can't talk about them because they're like, HR things. Yeah. But like things that you would cannot believe. I like cannot believe I'm dealing with this issue. Or I I can't believe you know, I can't believe that we're getting the police involved in this thing. Yeah. Like, that's what happens when you have enough people. And sometimes I remember thinking, like, oh, is this gonna end the company, this people issue, or this whatever? And then you talk to someone with a much larger organization, and they're like, well, did you ever talk about the time that the FBI rated us because <laughs> we have <a> <laughs> working for us? And I'm like, no. And then you're and you're like, I guess, I guess you can survive anything.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's knowing when to panic. (laughs)
1: Yeah.
0: Hey, how has, um, how has becoming a a parent changed you as a, as a leader?
1: Oh, it has definitely changed me. I think it has made me so much more aware of the value of time and the value of scheduling and the value of agendas and meetings and like (laughs) It is basically, I feel like if I'm at work, I better be doing the right stuff and not wasting my time. Yeah. Like you've the ultimate alternative for any of your time, which is like spending time with your kids. And like for me, it's just incredibly rewarding. So I feel like I'm going to be at work. I better be doing good stuff. And I don't want people wasting time. I'm starting meetings when they start. Like I, you know, it, and I realized the second I became a parent, oh, all well, the other parents were always like this. <laughs> they, uh-huh. they were super frustrated if the meeting was starting late. And I was like, what does it matter? Like, we have time. You know, I was like really loosey-goosey with it. So, yeah, I think it's, it's helped. It also has helped me going back to delegation. It like helped me realize like I have to, I have to get really good at delegating because if I don't do that, I'm, you know, I'm, I can't stay up late working on stuff if i'm also going to be like helping kids like go to bedtime and then you know they're young and they wake up at night and like oh look you just can't survive like that so you must you just it forces you basically to grow up (laughs) (laughs)
0: like there is this 10 minute increment to do this it must fit in this 10 minutes not in the two hours i may have taken on it before
1: exactly i will look at my calendar like oh i have 30 minutes What should I get done? I was like, "Well, I'll get all my emails done, and I'll write up this thing." I'll just have, and you sit down and you just crank and you do it because there isn't another time.
0: Yeah. And what are you most um, excited about right now?
1: You know, there's a lot of fun stuff that we're doing. We are. We just built a new studio, which I'm sitting next to right now, and we have a a few different sets that are going to be set up so that we can like really quickly pump out shows. And we've had a a studio for years, but it's been kind of more of a black box that we reshape. And this is more like sets that are set up for weekly and monthly shows. Mm -hmm. And so we're working on a bunch of different shows that are going to start kind of soon. I'm really excited about that. It's like stretching our creative muscles in a different way. Yeah. We have a huge product launch that's planned for the end of September, which is very exciting, which I can't talk about, unfortunately, but is very... Super
0: secret. Yes.
1: Well, you got to have some secret stuff. Absolutely. Uh, You got to build
0: up some anticipation. Mm -hmm. yes but i'm
1: really excited about that yeah there's a there's a there's a lot going on i think it's you know we kind of got the company through that transition and did the buyback and then we got really profitable last year which is really exciting and we've gotten that profitable confidence back and so there's a bunch of bunch of big swings bunch of long-term stuff and so that's that's those are the problems i like to work on so it's a lot to be excited
0: about very cool Chris, it's always really, really great to talk to you. I think the way that you're thinking about your work and your company and the creativity and joy that you are uh, instilling in the the startup world is quite a gift to the larger community, not only to Wistia. (laughs) So (laughs) thanks for taking some of your very precious time to talk to me today.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me and I'm excited that you you cover these topics. I mean, people need to think about what work means and the psychology of work and how to live a balanced life and all of that stuff. And so I really appreciate you having me.
0: Yeah. My pleasure. Good luck out there. Thank you. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode of the podcast. In the meantime, feel free to check out zenfounder.com for lots of resources about the kinds of conversations that we have on the podcast.